Hi everyone, I'm Riyadh Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone. This is Riata. Welcome to Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. I know that a lot of people need to have their mind distracted from the current uncertainty and anxiety, but I also hope that that this podcast and different perspectives on resilience, on struggle, on hope will be interesting and beneficial wisdom for you, that you will at least expand your horizons in this time of a global pandemic when we have no idea what will happen next. I wish that we all hear that this way or another, we're going to make through this. As I told you in the introduction, in this podcast, we'll have conversations with people from all over the world, at all stages of life, and from all industries. That said, considering my own background, I could not imagine moving forward with this podcast in any other way than having the first conversation with a fellow Bosnian. More specifically, a survivor of the Srebrenica genocide, but also prolific writer and academic. I do have to add a caveat to this particular episode. Uh, my today's guest joined me from a remote village, um, beloved one close to Srebrenica, and we had a wonderful conversation about his present work, past challenges that shaped him into who he is today, and future visions. He did apologize and he did warn me in advance that we might have some technological issues which ended up being true after I tried um, checking this conversation out. But we still decided not to go and try repeating it for the second time or wait for some better infrastructural circumstances. We wanted to stay authentic and we wanted to provide a meaningful conversation in circumstances that found us in that particular moment and day. But I do hope that you will really appreciate this unique opportunity to meet an important man who is in the forefront of official endeavors of preserving the truth about the Bosnian genocide and fight against the denial of it. Thank you in advance for your understanding. Enjoy. Now, because we have listeners from all over the world, I have to make a short recap that those familiar with the recent Balkan history might know already. When we speak about the dissolution of Yugoslavia, let's remind that Bosnia and Herzegovina as one of the constituent republics held referendum on independence on the 
of the country on 29th February and 1st March in 92. Then over two thirds of electoral body voted in favor of sovereignty and independence despite Serbian extremist nationalist provocations. According to international standards, that sufficed for international recognition of the state, which happened soon after. But that was not enough, unfortunately, to stop the bloodshed which ensued, with siege of Sarajevo as the capital, but also with the aggression in other parts of the country as well, which lasted until the end of 95 and took more than 100,000 lives. Now, when we speak about the Srebrenica genocide, we should say it was the worst crime committed on European soil since World War II. Following the capture of Srebrenica by military and police forces of the Republic of Srpska on 11th July 1995, the military and police forces of the Bosnian Serbs killed over 8,000 Muslim men in Srebrenica town in just a few days. In parallel with that execution, the political and military leadership of Bosnian Serbs ordered the forced displacement of women and children from the enclave of Srebrenica, which ended the process of ethnic cleansing in the entire Podrinje region, which actually started in April 92. Let's also remember that this took place in an area declared a UN safe zone by the UN Security Council's Resolution 819. And Prior to that horror in 95, I do want to remind our listeners that there were also several years of persecution, torture, much of which was done by neighbors and people who used to be friends or colleagues. So my today's guest is an author of not just one book, but one of them uh, preserves the memory of the horrific sequence of events that documents the pain of living in those horrible circumstances prior to the executions in July 95, where he describes both the hunger of the local population, um, the events in 93 when actually the then president of United States, Bill Clinton, decided to airdrop food to the enclaves in eastern Bosnia. So then American planes started dropping packages of food. He might tell us more about it, but in his book, he describes that by April 93, people were eating anything that seemed remotely digestible. Corn cobs, hazel bushes. He talks about another pain, which was shortage of salt. He talks about the situations in medical, well, we can't even call them proper hospitals because uh, there was so much and so many surgical procedures which were performed without anesthetics. He reminds us how the only way to get in touch with family members was through amateur radio operators. If anyone is interested in reading a powerful first-hand account of circumstances of life in years leading up to the genocide in Bosnia, in Srebrenica, sorry, I do recommend a book by Hasan Uhanovic, who is a dedicated campaigner and activist. The book is called The Last Refuge, a true story of war, survival, and life under siege of Srebrenica and it was published in 2019. Hassan was saved because he worked as interpreter for UN troops, but his family was taken away and never came back. And I do want to reiterate another, a couple of other painful facts, because as painful as it is, it is this memory that we must keep by reminding ourselves about it. 
it, even worse than the murder was the process of hiding and destroying evidence of the committed crimes, transfer of bodies of victims from primary graves, and reburial to secondary, sometimes even to tertiary ones. It took a while for the world to learn of Srebrenica as well. It was the ambassador, United States ambassador to the UN at the time, Madeleine Albright, who presented the global public with evidence of the committed crimes on August 11, 95, with satellite images of recently excavated mass graves. And then the NATO launched airstrikes against Bosnian Serb forces, not then, but a few weeks later, after massacre of the open market called Markale happened in Sarajevo, resulting in 43 civilian deaths. Peace negotiations in Dayton, um, in the United States, were concluded in the end of November 95, ending aggression against Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, we could talk more uh, or not about the problematic peace that ensued after, but that was the end of military aggression. Today, Srebrenica is a municipality within the Bosnian entity of the Republika Srpska. The other entity is called Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Srebrenica has about 7,000 permanent residents. Uh, many survivors were resettled in the surrounding areas and only a small number of people returned to their pre-war homes. So today our conversation will be with the director of the Srebrenica Potocere Memorial Center, Dr. Emir Sulegic. As I said, he's not just the survivor of the Srebrenica genocide and director of the Memorial Center, but a prolific writer and academic. He is also a pretty vocal man and a commentator of political realities within Bosnia and outside, quite active on the social media, which sometimes or often brings both praise, public criticism, and unfortunately, death threats as well. I'm glad that he found time for joining me today because there can be no memory without a dedication and commitment for either preserving the historical truth about Bosnian genocide, but also for fighting against the ever-increasing denial of it. So I personally find his role at the Srebrenica Memorial Center absolutely crucial for strengthening that project, which is very fragile in terms of both its financial budget and human capacities. Of course, when I think about dignity and resilience, that institution is incredibly important for moving forward in today's world when the battle of narratives about the war unfortunately still continues even in peaceful times. Um, I also told Dr. Sulegic that I know we can't escape politics, but that I wish to talk about philosophy with him as well today. Um, I'm not quite sure that he gets asked these sorts of questions a lot, so maybe it's going to be a change for him as well, and he kindly accepted. So hello and welcome to the podcast and to the new Zoom reality. <laughs> How are you? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Are you well today? Uh, thank you for, uh, for having me on your podcast, first of all. Um, good afternoon or early evening here. Um, I guess I'm doing as well as the next man. Um, and um, I was more than happy to accept your invitation and, um, and talk to you about things that we obviously both consider important. And I think it's important um, at a time like this, especially to uh, keep the awareness um, of um, 
of disasters of, 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 of human, you know, man-made disasters um, that we recently witnessed. And you know, in that regard, I thank you for uh, being persistent and uh, and and being out there. Thank you. I think we all have a part to do. And one thing that I hope is that we keep allowing each other to recognize that there are all sorts of ways that we can um, contribute in terms of preserving, uh, regardless of our occupation. And uh, whether it's through writing, talking about it, um, raising awareness on it, about it, and just putting the narratives out in the public. So considering that there is a global pandemic right now and your uh, title at the Srebrenica Memorial Center in Potocari. I was wondering how is the pandemic affecting your work there? Are you preparing some specific online le learning resources? Uh, what's going on right now? Well, a lot of our activity obviously revolves around um, visits and, and, and visitors. Um, and in that respect, we are um, in a position that other memorials and, and museums are, are in. Um, we have had to close down uh, the memorial, uh, the, the museum part of the memorial, but also um, with the risk of erring on the side of caution, decided to close down the cemetery. Um, so obviously we can control the numbers um, of people who go in and, and out. Um, so what we did in the meantime, we've sort of ventured, and I think we're, it's interesting that uh, a memorial dedicated to, um, to genocide is actually the first to, in Bosnia, to venture into virtual tours, um, YouTube channel. We are, as an institution, sort of reaching, also active um, um, in, on, on, on social platforms. Uh, I personally believe in in outsourcing uh, the messages as much as possible uh, once, of course, the message is clearly defined. Um, so, and we will be doing some other things very soon um, in preparation for the 25th anniversary um, that we're actually, so there's a, a project um, that we're developing right now that will also allow us to um, to outsource, um, to have, or to crowdsource, if you will, um, uh, um, our, 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 the anniversary, especially, um, to invite as many people as possible to join us um, in, in commemorating the, the victims of July 1995. Um, although I would have to uh, kind of take exception here to what seems to be the prevalent truth of our time, which is that that genocide is somehow and exclusively only um, related to those events um, of July 1995. Um, I, I argue, and I have argued, and I believe um, I'm I'm right there uh, that that Srebrenica was on, only uh, a culmination of a, of a three and a half year policy. Um, that policy um, has unfortunately been named ethnic cleansing um, and, and there's a there's a, a very um, interesting etymology behind the the notion of ethnic cleansing um, 
but essentially it was part of the vocabulary of the perpetrators that was picked up by the Western, primarily Western media, and, and more even more importantly, policy community that was kind of bent on on trying to find ways not to act in face of what was obviously um, uh, tantamount to genocide, or what was obviously genocide going on unfolding in Bosnia. Um, so, and, and that's another part of what we want to do uh, with the memorial. We want to commemorate um, other victims um, outside those of July 1995. Um, um, the, 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 the Bosnia, um, the Bosnia uh, uh, Muslim population of the Drina Valley um, was targeted for extermination starting in April and May 1992. Um, and obviously uh, to somehow and completely artificially separate those victims from those in July 1995 is not historically true. And then of course there is this period uh, between, say, May 92 and April 93, uh, where the town itself was um, under probably the most brutal siege that, that, that this country has witnessed. Um, and the number of dead um, from that period have never been counted. And that's have not even been counted, you know? Um, so that's another thing that we're going to be doing very soon. Uh, we want to sort of, you know, set up, you know, to, to try and put together um, a whole narrative, a wider narrative of how and why it got to where it got in July 1995. And obviously, you know, when you when you look at the UN document, you see uh, UN documents um, referring to slow motion genocide already in April 1993. Now, why have there been all these qualifications around the word genocide in 92 and 93? I don't know. I, I you know, I wish I did. Um, I, I And I wish it didn't have as much as I believe it did have were to do with the fact that, that the, the victims uh, were actually Muslims and that they were Muslims in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so that's that's another, you know, one of the other things that we're doing. Um, um, of, of course, if I may just um, ask you and remind that Another reason why the memorialization is so important beyond the obvious is that the entire generations of Bosniaks were wiped out and a lot of survivors are now dying. Um, so how are you making sure that the stories of and the testimonies are being collected? Um, I remember that I heard that um, you were collecting the belongings or that you were inviting the survivors to provide the institution with any items which belong to the victims, correct? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we're doing. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to save both the artifacts and the narrative that goes with them. Um, we're doing well in terms, of, in terms of artifacts collection. I think, you know, and, and people have been survivors and families have been more than, than sort of more than welcome. They, they've been they welcomed us. They welcomed this initiative. They, they, they. There was. I've heard a lot of questions about, you know, why this wasn't done earlier, and 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 there is an explanation. I mean, you know, we really didn't know what we, what we wanted to do. I mean, the, 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 us survivors you know, started as out as a cemetery. You know, we have to remember that. that you know, that, that seventeen years ago, the idea was okay. Let's just bury them there, um, and 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 that idea slowly evolved into developing a memorial. 
And now we you know, are sort of putting in place uh, final pieces of the vision of this memorial. Uh, we have been less um, successful, and I am, I'm going to say that, but with, with collecting stories with, with oral history. Uh, part of the reason was that there was no infrastructure in place when I got there. Um, we are not putting it in place. And sooner rather than later, what we will do is we'll start our own um, our own oral history project. We don't need um, how can I say we don't need hundreds of thousands of, of dollars or euros to you know and, and those fancy projects. Um, we I believe we have enough at the memorial. Um, of course, getting some money you know to actually pay some extra people would be great, but. That doesn't matter. We will be continuing. We will continue to do that. Um, and what we also did is we went around, um, and that was probably the most horrific part of what we, what, what I did, what we did ever since I got there. And I only got there. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I only got there in October last year, and uh, and. It happened on the day my, you know, I was actually appointed, I was supposed to be appointed uh, the head of the memorial on the day my mother died. Um, and I was in fact on my way from the, the university where I teach in Sarajevo here when they called me from the hospital to say that, that my mom had died. And, um, but anyway, I, I, I found it really, I found it, you know, I thought the life was kind of playing with me again. Um, one of the things that we did, we also, so to get back to, to, to answering your question, uh, we also put, put together a small team of, of survivors and, and uh, people working at the memorial. Um, and they took the same, the route of the death march from July 95. Um, and you wouldn't believe the kind and the amount of artifacts that were that, that were that were still there 25 years later, and that they had collected. Um, and we took care to you know carefully note. Uh, you know, we took the um, the coordinates. Uh, we filmed the environment, the surrounding. I mean, you know, we just kind of developed our own methodology for it, uh, and we took care to ensure that there is a very clear chain of custody there. Um, and, and on one or two occasions, um, the, 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 the survivors who are uh, working for the memorial on that particular project actually found human bones as well. So, um, and that's the challenge of doing what we're doing. I mean, there's, there's still 1,700 people that we're looking for from July 1995 alone. Um, and, and nobody's saying where they are. Nobody, everybody's keeping quiet. You know, this this wall of silence was was kind of broken only once or twice in the last twenty five years. I think that um, it's important also to tell our listeners who might not be familiar um, that, which is another challenge that survivors of the Bosnian genocide are facing, is that. You know, based on the work by Gregory Stanton, who is a genocide scholar and president of the Genocide Watch, which is an organization dedicated to identifying and preserving genocides, um, as a nonlinear process, 
we have kind of learned that genocide develops usually in 10 stages. And ideally, um, as you know, Gregory Stanton said, by recognizing these different stages, we should also be able to develop uh, preventive measures to stop it. And those 10 sta stages are classification, symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution, extermination, denial. Now, what I think that people around the world also need to be aware of, which is, I believe, specific for the current situation in Bosnia, is something that Haris Halilovic, who is a Bosnian scholar based in Australia, studied, and he wrote that, you know, if unpunished, genocide, genocide can also result in 11th stage, which he entitled triumphalism. Um, in this stage, as uh, Mr. Prof. Professor Halilovic says, perpetrators, their sponsors, and the politics behind genocide do not deny the killings anymore, but glorify them, celebrate their deeds, humiliate the survivors, build monuments to the perpetrators at the sites of the massacres, and create a culture of triumphalism, such has been seen in the parts of Bosnia, where Serb militias committed genocide against Bosniaks. So when we speak about, you know, all sorts of challenges, it's not just the denial. Unfortunately, what we've, we've been witnessing is the triumphalism of genocide. Um, so considering that reality, which we know exists in Bosnia, um, why is it uh, additionally important to keep sharing the facts and stories, not only for Bosnia's own sake, Dr. Suragic, but also because of the new situation with the far right around the world being inspired by the Bosnian genocide and this nonchalant triumphalism of it? Uh, well, I, we live in a state of permanent glorification of genocide. Um, and the Memorial Center also operates in an environment that, um, that is steeped uh, in in glorification of genocide. And um, just last year, uh, or actually this year, January um, January 6th, um, as part of the celebration of the Orthodox Christmas, uh, a column of tractors and cars drove right next to the memorial and to the cemetery, uh, playing um, um, loud nationalist music. The, the government in this part of this uh, Serb-administered part of Bosnia um, is also systematically denying um, what the events of July 1995 uh, and has invested uh, enormous amounts of money in creating a counterfactual narrative about what happened here. And, uh, and this is the first time I'm actually talking about it, but uh, very soon, the memorial will issue what we are hoping is going to be its first annual report on genocide denial. And uh, it's going to come out in both English and, and Bosnian. Mm -hmm. um, and what we will try to do as well is, um, and we already kind of tried to frame it in, in that part of it in that way, um, try and sort of put it uh, out there as part of this growing wave of Islamophobia in the world and growing wave of, of far right. And interestingly, and I kind, I kind of wrote about it, um, actually I did write a, a little about it, you know, 
figures such as Radovan Karadzic and Radko Maric um, have been instrumental uh, to, um, to, to to rebirth of this far-right, um, let's say, let's, let's call it openly fascist and racist um, uh, wave that's been hitting uh, the entire world from from U.S. to to Australia, yeah. um, and and it's you know it's it's kind of interesting uh, phenomenon that the murder of the Bosnian Muslims has served as an inspiration to this uh, to this uh, wave of, of far right extremism and 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 you know on some occasions terrorism. Um, as well, um, and I think it's it's a question that deserves a lot more study. And and given what's going on right now, given the the, the, the epidemic, I, I believe that we're going to see more of that once the epidemic settles down. I think we're already seeing it in India. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll probably see it across Europe and probably in the United States, which I'm really kind of I'm really heartbroken, you know, about seeing what's going on in the U.S. right now. Honestly, you know, I uh, I, I truly am. Uh, but we'll see more of it. We'll see we'll see nationalists from or far right extremists from Milorad Dodik, the, the president of the Bosnian Serbentity in Bosnia, to other political figures. You know, somehow making the connection between the virus and the and the Muslims worldwide. Um, and that's something that we should also, um, you know. We should also be very careful about in in, in weeks and, and months and obviously you know years ahead of us. Yeah, if we speak of classifications, um, I wanted to also mention another <coughs> more healing one. I guess um, as many listeners might know, in 1969, Elizabeth Kubler Ross uh, first identified the stages of dying in her transformative book on death and dying. And then decades later, she and David Kessler wrote the classic book on grief and grieving, introducing the stages of grief most of us are now familiar with, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so now, um, actually last year, Mr. Kessler published a new book based on his difficult, hard-earned personal experiences, as well as knowledge and scholarly work regarding grieving. And uh, he introduced a critical stick stage. I was wondering, are you aware of, do you know what it is? I'll tell you. But no, I do not. No, I, 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 okay, no. I think the book was published in um, November 2019. But um, David Kessler argues now that there's six stage and that it is finding meaning beyond the stages of grief most of us are familiar with that can transform grief into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. So I was wondering, have you gotten to that stage yet? Um, I don't even know about the other stages, to be completely honest. Uh, You were probably uh, experiencing them, even though, of course, uh, the authors say that it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive of what might No, listen, the thing is, I'm not... Um, I've only read probably as much psychology as, as I needed to pass a few exams uh, in my undergrad studies. I've sort of went the other way. 
I don't know. I, I think you could say that probably for the first time in my life, I'm actually doing the job that that means something to me in a, in a way that no, no other job did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every time I go, every day I pass, I, I go to work, I pass by the cemetery where essentially everyone I knew with is buried, uh, or most of them. I, I see what the bigger role of what I'm doing is. Uh, I see the, the bigger picture for the institution. You know, for me personally, this has to do a lot with my mom. You know, it's, it's she died of cancer and, and, and it didn't take very long. It took essentially from in, the end of July until mid-October. She didn't want me to have this job. She wanted me close by. She wanted me somewhere that where she can reach me by phone, where I can be, you know, around within an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't want me taking the risk of taking this job. And and in a way, you know, and I know if she if she'd stayed alive, she'd say she'd finally say, okay, yeah, that's you know, you've never listened to me anyway about what you do and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and she she'd come to terms with it. But you know, to me this job is a lot about that it's and yes i you're right i mean it's it's probably more, more meaningful than anything that i've ever done in my life it's uh it's something that um something i will so something i wanted to do for a very long time as well um but i'm glad i didn't um i don't think i would have been ready for it i think i'm right now at this stage in my life where i have both the the experience of the last 25 years, well, the last 30 years behind me, um, you know, what I've learned, what I've picked up on. And I ha- also have, um, so I'm, 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 I'm a local, you know, I'm, I'm one of these guys. So, uh, and it's really important, you know, when you come here to, and, and, and you actually live with uh, uh, the other survivors who have come back, it's kind of important that you're one of them. You know, it's important to them. Um, it's important to me. I am more peaceful now than I ever was, which you, of course, wouldn't be able to say based on my Twitter feed, but that's a different matter. <laughs> that's what I said. You don't usually get asked this sort of question, so I was excited to kind of put you in a different framework. Uh, and I actually um read about uh, your mom and you spoke and wrote of her at various places and you wrote you spoke of her resilience and described experience of her and your sister and you wrote my mother never looked back on that period of her life she always tried to encourage us to move on and look forward um and it's not just a figure of speech, trust me, that, that, that's who she was. The next battle on the horizon, um, some you win, some you lose, but you know, it's always about the next battle on the horizon. It's as simple as that. It's, uh, you yeah. know, life is such that it doesn't really allow you to sit and mourn. Um, and whereas that may have been kind of, but whereas that may have been helpful and certainly, certainly was helpful in many ways, you know, for me to in that period of my life when I was adjusting from being a, um, a, a, a survivor, in, you know, to being a student, a journalist, a, a functioning a member of the community, you know, that certainly was it was a great to have someone like that around. It was, uh, you know, she was uh, 
She was tough as nails. Um, she uh, she broke no BS, uh, and uh, and um, it was you know she wouldn't allow me to um, to brood. She wouldn't allow me to despair over anything. You know, you just there was and there was only one answer to every single question. You know, you get up and do it. Get up and do it. Work. So yeah. Um, and honestly, I have not spoken with her for six months like this. So in a way, I kind of owe you, uh, I want to say thank you. I, I hope I didn't trigger uh, a bad... No, 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 no. I've, I've, you know, it's a... I think that resilience that you spoke of and that dignity is what I always find in stories of so many Bosnian women. And I hope that I will have an episode of this podcast specifically on that and beyond Bosnian context as well. I was actually just yesterday watching um, an episode that Oprah did with uh, Dr. Edith Eva Eger, who is a Holocaust survivor and trauma expert. And she now uses her experience to help others learn to move past suffering. And also... Uh, Dr. Edith spoke of her mom um, in, in the book, The Choice, which she published a memoir in 2017, where she explores the nature and the power of healing. And she said that at each gathering uh, today with her clients or whether it's soldiers or military that she counsels or whoever it might be, she repeats what her mother told her the day they were taken by the Nazis. And that was that we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. But no one can take away from you what you put in your own mind. So she always mentions the words of her mother. I just thought that um, those words, in terms of consolation and comfort, um, kind of resonated. Um, do, what do you think about those Dr. Edith's mom's words in terms of the importance of what we put in our mind, in terms of the narratives that we say each other for resilience, for preserving dignity, for just kind of moving on in circumstances that many never should experience. Well, I mean, I don't know. My mom, my mom wasn't that eloquent, if you will, or articulate. She was a... Uh, um, a peasant woman from rural eastern Bosnia. Um, but there is something about this particular group of Bosnian women, let me tell you that. Uh, they've, um, they bore the brunt um, of what happened here between 92 and 95. Um, and they are the, the, the unsung heroes of, of this country, as far as I'm concerned. Um, they came out of what was, by all standards, a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, that, that's what Srebrenica was for three years. Um, and they came out, you know, with their husbands and brothers and fathers killed and, and, and kids to support, children to support. And they did it admirably, all of them, you know. One day, uh, I was living illegally in the student dormitory in Sarajevo. And uh, 
and there were like two of us, you know, there was a, it was a two bedroom, but there were four of us, two of us from Srebrenica and the other two from another enclave uh, of Gorazde. And, you know, it was like a room full of PTSD. So um, anyway, one day I'm, I'm sitting there and, and somebody's knocking at the door. Um, and I open the door and it's my mom. And I'm like, okay, mom, what, what's going on? What are you doing here? Well, listen, you know, buses came for us because she lived, uh, she used to live in a refugee camp in Tuzla at that point in time. And I was in Saturday Avenue taking my studies and buses came for us. They unloaded us somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, they told us that we could go and live in empty houses. So I just wanted to let you know I'm there and uh, you know, pick, pack half your stuff and, and, and move out there. You're going to live alone. And I'm like, I was sitting there and I couldn't believe it. I just, you know, um, I couldn't just, <laughs> I couldn't believe her. And then we moved into an empty house that I had no idea who we'd belong to. Mm-hmm. We spent we spent four uh, four years living there. We moved out when the owner came back, um, and you know that that episode alone kind of really tells me more about my mom than than, than pretty much anything else. That she would just do it. It's another obstacle to to overcome. All right, let's do it. Let's overcome it. You know, and again, this is the woman who was. She completed only four grades of elementary school because um, that was the, the norm for women at that, you know, when she was back in, in at that age when she was living in, in, in rural Eastern Bosnia and even that was too much. Her father was, a, was an imam uh, and he even advised her you know, to pretend that she was mute when uh, she was undergoing uh, elementary school examination. But my mom couldn't keep up, keep quiet. You know, she just couldn't keep quiet. And she ended up, you know, at least taking those four grades. Um, and I used to joke with her, you know, if she had completed, you know, uh, she had completed just a, a secondary school, she'd be out there, up there with, with Margaret Thatcher. That's who, she, that's who she was. It took me decades to understand what, what my father taught me. And I, and I was 17 years old when I, when, when I lost him. Mm-hmm. And you know, his death was, that was in December 92. Um, and I didn't have a lot of time to deal with it. You know, I dealt with it incrementally, um, in spoonfuls, if you will, you know, occasionally, because this, the, there was the pressure in the air of, having to survive. One of the things, one of, one of the last things that my mom did for me was actually by ensuring that I actually transition into a peacetime world. And this is the first time that I'm living in, in peace at peace. Um, now, before I get to five sweet questions, as I, as I call them, um, I wanted to also ask and this is different than questions that you get asked a lot about possibilities of reconciliation and why has it not happened and why do you think it will happen and what is required for it. And you can touch upon that if you'd like. But I did want to ask you about hope more specifically and potentially separately from that 
um, from that question and the immediate reality and your professional endeavor as well. Are you a pessimist by nature? Have you always been a pessimist, optimist? Has it changed? Is it changing? <laughs> I, I admire people who do. I really I admire their... Who hope? It takes, yeah, I, I, it takes a certain kind of fortitude. My fellow Bosnian speaking, by the way. Funny note, my husband claims that I have something called Balkan paranoia, which does not allow me to enjoy life, as he claims, because precisely I see everything as a potential disaster, or when it's yeah. not a disaster, I feel it's not normal, you know, so... I learn and teach myself to be an optimist for a change, if I may, at situations. But I, I hear what you're, what you're saying. No, I mean, it's just that it's very simple. It takes a certain kind of fortitude to be hopeful that I don't have. Um, that's it. As simple as that. And, and I don't kind of give a lot. I don't care very much for hope. Um, I'm a hopeful person, you know. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, hope doesn't necessarily play a role in, in the lives of every single one of us individually, you know, you have to be hopeful uh, for, for this or that. But in the bigger picture, you know, hope is a, a very poor, um, it's not a very good ally, you know. Um, that's as simple as that. I'm not, and, and I'm doing more. Hope, too. hope does not, in my opinion, always have to be illusion or... I think hope, but it's usually yeah. It's very often delusion. So yeah, that, that's uh, <laughs> that's why I'm teaching myself to kind of just be hopeful as an active way of working, realizing that the world is a messed up place. But that I think what you're doing, or I think that this podcast is a manifestation of hope that I'm providing meaningful content that will be beneficial to somebody and i think that what you're doing is also a manifestation of your conscious or unconscious hope that our generations of not just bosniaks but all the people of good faith will know that very bad things happen but that they should never happen again and that we're constantly and actively showing that we are here i think that like you mentioned i think that any uh, manifestation in terms of any return to Srebrenica of any person, of any survivor, yours as being the director of that memorial center is a manifestation of dignity and also of victory of life over death. I think that that is hope, but you may not acknowledge. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm kidding. Not. No, I'm, I'm not saying you're not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm, 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 you're yeah. right. And, and again, rationally, I completely understand. Essentially, what I've been through between May '92 and July '95 has turned me into who I am. I mean, it's it's yeah. been the formative part of my life. Um, it is the kind of experience that defined me. I tried as hard as I could to run away from that. I spent years, um, sometimes even defiantly uh, running away from that, um, mm -hmm. trying to be other things, trying to be other people, um, it, until 
and until a, a period of my life in the, in the Hague, uh, where I had, and I had this dubious privilege of, of covering the work of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia for um, two and a half years. And, and it was kind of, that's when I realized that you don't get to run away from that. You may try, but I kind of, you know, by doing that, I kind of re-traumatized myself in a way that that made me understand that that it was impossible for me um, to detach myself from that experience. Going to The Hague and working there sort of did for me, it helped. I actually had to relearn some of the things that I'd survived. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I managed to kind of take a step back and see the bigger picture uh, and realized that, that what I felt instinctively, instinctually, um, that there is a, 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 a bigger story behind it. We were also killed as part of an area that our lives and deaths, uh, and that's how my friend's life ended, how my relative's life ended, uh, was part of another narrative. Working on it right now, working on a, on a, on a larger kind of, I don't know what, what it's going to be, a uh, larger text on, on, on the idea, on the, on, on the social construction of Muslims and the Serb elites. Um, and, and you see, that you know, some of these guys really were really out of the Middle Ages. We were being, we were killed as part of a story. We were killed as part of someone's story about themselves, and it, it really kind of changed a lot. Changed everything for me because there's you know when I was out there and you know you'd be meeting people and and when you you know. When you talk about your personal experience, they're somehow accepting. You know, it's like, okay, you know, there's this one individual who's got this kind of experience. And, yeah. But then, you know, the moment you start putting your experience in a, in, in, in a bigger narrative, in a bigger, you know, your story being part of a, of a bigger story, uh, people kind of tend to st- take, you know, step back and say, hey, no, 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 no. We need, it, it went through all kinds of things. And, you know, I remember there was this one stage where everybody was talking about de-ethnifying the, the, the crimes and I'm, I, it didn't make sense back then. It doesn't make sense today. I mean, you know, you couldn't say that the people who were killing Jews in Krakow in 1943 were not Germans. Of course, they were Germans. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the people who were killing Bosniaks in in Zvornik in 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 92 or in 95, they were Serbs. So I mean, you don't necessarily. How can you actually detach these? How, how can you, you know, how can you detach one's identity from acts that are being committed on behalf of that identity. Well, of course, in terms of reconciliation, there is certainly a need for leadership that is not existing right now in um, the region for this to be absolutely meaningful and all-encompassing. So I said I'm learning to be hopeful, but on this right now, in this particular moment, I can't be because of such as we mentioned, um, overwhelming denial by large majorities of people who are just 
put in this veil of ignorance and denial. But I want to remain optimistic. I don't know. But optimistic does not mean delusional or not cognizant of facts. Hence this podcast, hence my writing and talking and educating friends around me, and hence my humility to learn and amplify the voices of survivors um, everywhere. But I do want to um, come to fun five questions. Um, (laughs) I mean, not that the other things were not fun, but actually this is actually fun. Um, The first thing is once the current emergency is over, we might maybe forget some things, but what would you not want to forget? Uh, it's not going to be a fun, fun answer, uh, honestly. What I'm not going to forget about the, the epidemic is the fact that um, a lot of the same people or the, you know, those who subscribe to the ideology that's behind the murder of Bosniaks uh, in the 90s um, have not have not changed their views on on that, even at the time of pandemic. Mm -hmm. But then maybe related to which of your personality traits has been most useful? And when I mean most useful, I don't think about the best trait. I think which of your traits has been the most useful. And of course the context matters and the context varies. But if you were to ask yourself, what is something that has been the most useful? What would you say? I'm hoping for a fun answer here. Fingers crossed. Persistence. 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 Yeah, persistence. But persistence more than anything else. He's persistent and saying it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm actually, yeah, I I, I don't give up. I, I, I have never given up. Uh, on anything that I've ever tried. Uh, if there's one thing that I'm aware about myself and that uh, has helped me in my life, it's been the fact that I'm persistent. Because you know, essentially, I, I got out of the got out of Severinca, um as a what 20 year old guy uh, with uh, not even a high school diploma, and I had to play catch up for a lot of my life. In many ways, um, and I'm still playing catch up. And on some things, I've given up. You know, like I don't know, classical music, for instance. I've given up on that. All right, uh, but on you know <laughs> things that are important to me uh, and that I cannot give up on, um, I have been working at them relentlessly. And 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 that's you know one of those things that again I I, I see my mom on you know. I recognize that part of my character as my mom's, because that's who she was. My my father was more of a bon vivant. He would probably, you know, um, go out and uh, get a few drinks and think the situation over. Um, my mom was more of a more of a soldier, and uh, and I, I believe I inherited that from her. Mm. So when you have thirty minutes of free time, how do you pass that time? 
I know now, now every time. <laughs> well, I, I now we're usually. Right? Normally, no, actually, dances, or how yeah. do you, what is it? You gave up on classical music, but you do have a greenhouse. I mean, like you plant vegetables. Yeah, I, you know, uh, here's the thing. If I have 30 minutes uh, completely under my control, uh, I usually read. That's what I do. I uh, Right now, I'm actually reading... Um, I'm reading, uh, 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 it's called The Bottom Faith uh, by uh, Matthew Carr. It's, it's about the destiny of the um, uh, Andalusian Muslims. Uh, and I'm rereading uh, Bergen and Lukman's classic on social construction. Um, but that's what I do when I, when, when I have everything under control. I'm growing plants and, and, and owning a greenhouse is really about keeping this place alive. You know, it's me. I thought that that this place died at one point in my life, and then complete by complete accident, I, I kind of helped bring life in 2012. I need this geography in my life, and this is a way of keeping me here. And my mom spent uh, a good part of her last years here, and 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 this geography is essentially the first thing I remember. I remember, you know, like and nobody gets to take that away from me. I think it's great. And I think that I would, um, I was wondering if, I was hoping or wondering whether gardening would be the answer to my next question, because it was, what skill or craft would you like to master? Uh, I think I'm done. Oh, come on, giving <laughs> up like, classical gardening. Like, no, come on, come on. Come I'm, done. I'm done with skills or crafts, all right? That's it. What I know, I know. I'm 45 years old. I mean, what I've learned, I've learned. That's it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, this is perfect answer for resilience. Like, he's giving up. <laughs> Man is giving up on everything. No, I, I, I know Microsoft Office. I know you basic computers. Know. You learn Zoom. I know Zoom. I, I know I know Skype. I know Gmail. So you know, I don't need anything else, really. I uh, once again, I told you, I, I was, you know, I I come from a very long family of, of from a family of uh, you know with the the very long tradition of surviving, you know, and of course part of that, you know, you pick stuff along the road that you need to survive. Whatever is access, access, you throw it away, and that's it. Uh, that's how I kind of tend to live. And I, and I never, ever, ever, I never got, I never get attached to things. That's one thing that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thankful that. Right. Which now leads me to another interesting question, which I must separate myself from. I'm being a very, I'm, what? I'm not being a very interesting conversationist here, but hey, you know. No, 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 absolutely. Some of it rings a lot of bell with conversations I have with my own husband, who is not Bosnian. So uh, it does ring a bell, but I'm at least training myself to keep pushing forward. I'm a little bit younger than you, so I'm not giving up on some things yet. Uh, But I did want to ask, are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Listen, um, I'm going to quote a good friend of mine, um, which is, uh, and and you probably know him. His name is Rob Vyrovich, okay? Okay. And Reuf, I've, I've learned a lot with Reuf. I've learned a lot from Reuf. He's a great guy. Uh, and, and one of the things that I've learned from him is that the, the basic sort of criteria for establishing uh, 
you know, relationship or relations with people is uh, um, uh, to agree on my own opinion of me, okay? So unless we agree about who, about me, there's really no point of, of, uh, of entering um, into any kind of relationship. Now, okay, this was supposed to be a joke, but it obviously didn't work. Now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a lot better in Bosnia, seriously, trust me. I mean, it sounds a lot better in Bosnia. In Bosnia, it's like, you know, it's a very, it's like- Wait, a, but, wait, like wait, but that, what does that still mean for the answer to the question? Uh, well, I don't have a lot of friends who are very different from me. Okay. I, I've, you know, people I consider friends are people I agree with um, in terms of our worldview and people who I survived genocide with. And, you know, my friends come from these two groups of people. I'm not saying all of these, all of these groups, both of these groups, you know, in their totality are friends of mine. I mean, well, um, I think that I would like to continue with these fun questions, but I will always only ask five, and I want to ask five same questions to every person right. I have um, in the future as well, um, to kind of go beyond professional endeavors of each. Um,
a lot of exciting guests. The next one is from a completely different part of the world, and I'm very excited. I'm um, honored that I will have um, that conversation. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in promoting dignified resilience anywhere. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe now, invite your friends, and again, I can't wait to connect and have these conversations with you. Stay well and hold tight to those you love.